and we're involved in a spiritual battle. This is a serious business. Um, and we need to be maybe on our, on our knees a lot more uh, than perhaps we are sometimes. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. I'm the editor of Premier Christianity magazine. That is the UK's leading Christian magazine and it sponsors this show and makes it all possible. Here on The Profile, we always like to hear about a person's early life, uh, their faith, their testimony. I'm delighted to say that my guest today here on Premier Christian Radio is Matthew Skirton. He is the UK Chief Executive of Operation Mobilisation, also known as OM. It's an international family of ministries with more than 5,000 workers in over 110 different nations of the world. OM is perhaps best known for its ship ministry, and this year the charity is celebrating 50 years of that work. Matthew is from the UK, but he spent more than half of his life serving in Eastern Europe. Together with his wife, Helen, he pioneered OM's work in Moldova in the mid-1990s, handing over field leadership in March 2015. And then Matthew took on the role of UK Chief Executive the following year. Matthew, welcome to the show. Thanks, Sam. It's, it's really good to be able to be with you today. It's great to have you on. And um, as I say, we always like to start by hearing about a person's early life. So you obviously now work for a Christian mission organization, but have you always been a Christian yourself? Well, not not really. Um, I, I grew up in a wonderful Christian home uh, on the south coast of England and so thankful for my parents always taking me to church. Um, but if I'm honest, <clears throat> whilst I have happy memories of childhood and going to church and learning Bible stories. By the time I was entering my teenage years, the, the last thing I really wanted to be doing on a Sunday morning was, was going to church. I wanted to be going out with my friends. Um, but I, I knew it was important and it was something that our family did. But um, no, Sam, I certainly wouldn't say I had a personal faith. Um, I believed, I believed the stories, I believed that God existed, but I couldn't see the relevance for me. Um, and so, certainly growing up in my, in my teenage years, I didn't massively rebel, but neither was I walking closely in relationship with God. It's interesting for this show, obviously, I meet a lot of different Christians, and it's amazing how many people say that, raised mm. in a Christian home, but actually had this period, normally around teenage years, where you know, wasn't walking with God, people use different languages, wasn't walking with God or didn't, it didn't connect the head with the heart or it was a, it was a faith of my parents and not my own. Similar kind of stories. Why do you think that is that so many people have those stories of actually being raised in a wonderful Christian home, but, but around that kind of time of teenage years, if not walking away, then at least not taking God really seriously? Well, I think, you know, I think at, at that age, we're all trying to discover our identity and who we are. And, um, all, all sorts of changes and challenges are happening to us, aren't they, as, as teenagers? Um, all the peer pressure, we're looking at what our friends are starting to do. So it, it is, it's by God's grace. I mean, it's the prayer of, of, of our parents that, um, and, and, you know, our parents encouraging us to, to come along to church. Hopefully our parents um, praying with us and, and studying the Bible, encouraging us to read the Bible. But, you know, Sam, I had a Bible at home. My parents gave me a, a Bible. It, it sat by my bed. 
but I'd flick into it, look into it sometimes. I can remember a few times thinking I'm going to read through the whole Bible. I'd get to about chapter 10 of Genesis and then, then you know, finish. Um, so there was a there was an understanding for me growing up. It was important. God existed. I'd have said, yeah, God loves me. But I didn't really I didn't know that personally mm. at that stage. So what was it that changed for you? What was it that led to a personal encounter with God? Well, I think that I can think back to a couple of um, youth events at, at our church that I'd go to. And there was a sense, yeah, this is true. But I was still struggling to really personalize the faith. Went off to university at the age of 18. And, you know, I, I thought, well, I'm free now to live as I want. I don't have to go to church. I don't, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm free. I can make my own decisions. Um, very early on in my in my time at university, I, I met a girl and I fell in love with her. And I really, really liked this girl. I, I wanted to ask her out. The problem was she wasn't quite so sure about me. And the thing was, she was a, a strong believer. She had, she had been involved in some mission work for a year before coming to university and doing a gap year. So she had a... She had a real, a real live faith. And, and that was probably one of the things that attracted me to her. She wasn't just a religious person going to church. It, it seemed real. She knew God. She prayed to God. She, she spoke very freely about her relationship with God. I wanted to date and go out with her, but, but she wasn't sure about me. And so I had to make a decision. Now, during that time, I was starting to go to more and more Christian meetings because she was always there. <laughs> I was attending church, you know. And, um, and, and one of the big things that made the difference was that I saw that this, this girl had a Bible reading plan. She was reading regularly through the Bible. And as I said earlier, until then, occasionally I'd open the Bible and flick through and maybe read a psalm and thought that should be good for me. Um, but I've never been able to read regularly through the Bible. And so I, I got a copy of this Bible reading plan. And I thought to myself, if I can read through faster than she can, she's going to be really impressed and she's going to want to be my girlfriend. I mean, it was just wonderful motivation for reading the Bible. But, but something happened over those next weeks, months. And for that whole year, I read from Genesis through to Revelation, the whole Bible, and I can only describe it, it was as if it was as if God was revealing himself to me. But more than that, so I was learning about God, but I was learning about myself. I'd say it was like God was putting a mirror in front of my life. And until then, I'd thought I was a pretty good person. I was religious. I went to church. You know, my, my parents, teachers would have said, well, Matthew's a good boy. And yet I started to see that in the light of God, maybe there were things in my life that were wrong. I needed to ask forgiveness. And so over that period of that year, reading God's word every day, allowing God to reveal himself to me and, and show me what I was like, that was really the, the changing time for me. I couldn't give you a, a time and a date specifically, but I could say God changed my life during that year and has continued to work in me ever since. And what were you studying at the time at university? Uh, I was studying mathematics and this girl that I mentioned was studying classical studies. Um, 
And I, I should go on to say, not only did I learn more about God and get close to God, but also this girl did agree to, to, to befriend me and spend more time. And we eventually uh, got married. Ah, and, and there Helen, we go. I, I'm glad I was to hoping... say it's the same girl in the story as, uh, as my wife, Helen, today. I, I was hoping that would be the case because that would just, you know, really complete the story and round it up really nicely. It isn't always the case, but I'm pleased to hear it was in this, right, yeah. this occasion. So... Um, it's a wonderful story. Um, what came next for you after university? Well, I, I graduated a year uh, earlier than Helen. Now, after that first year of getting to know each other and me growing in my faith, actually, I, there, there was a while when Helen still wasn't sure about me because she was pretty committed. Um, she knew that God was calling her to be a missionary, to serve him on the foreign mission field somewhere. And even though I was growing in my faith as a Christian, I didn't think that was really the life for me. I was a math student. I was going to go and get a well-paid job in the city. And, and I was going to be a church member. And I, I, I'd be involved in the youth group or help lead a youth group. I, I'd live a good life and be a good Christian. But I couldn't see myself serving as a missionary. I mean, can God use a maths graduate from university? I, I thought that was for special people. And quite honestly, people who are a bit odd, a bit weird, a bit extreme. Um, but I wanted to impress this girl, Helen. And so I signed up um, to go on a short-term mission outreach. I thought if I go for a summer, a few weeks in the summer, have an experience and learn a little bit more what this girl, Helen, is talking about. And, and that's, that's another thing that really changed my life. Stepping out of my my own context, my comfort zone, going to a country in Eastern Europe just for a few weeks with a group of young people. It was as if God opened my eyes, firstly, to see that there were people, we were meeting people who had never heard the good news of Jesus, people who, who hadn't heard what it means to follow Jesus and, and to live in relationship with God through him. And so that was eye-opening for me, but also that realization that God can call and use ordinary people uh, to bring the message of hope uh, to others. And, and so those two things were, God was working in my life. I was coming to that at the end of my time at uni and I thought I'd sign up to join OM. I'd not really heard of OM, but it was a Christian mission also working in Eastern Europe and that was becoming of interest to me. I thought I'd join for a year and um, and impress Helen and then we'd get married and live happily ever after the problem. I joined for a year, then she joined me out on the mission field. We got married. And I think that was about 20, 28 years, years ago. We, we're still involved. <laughs> don't know what happened actually. <laughs> yes. Now, now that you actually sit down and think about it, you think, how did that happen? Uh, time, <laughs> yes. time flies. So um, as I said at the beginning, you, you pioneered um, OM's work in Moldova. So you're there for a long time, weren't you? Tell me a little bit about um, what that call looked like, or if you'd even describe it as a call, you know, what, was it this sense of actually God is calling us to put down roots here and to, and to be there long-term? Cause you were there for, um, for a long time, weren't you? Yeah, we, we were there for, for 20 years and, and um, just had the most extraordinary uh, opportunity to, to draw close to God and learn about him, but learn about how he could use us. But it came to uh, some people, you know, don't necessarily get a specific call to a specific people or, or location, but just have a sense. I want to go where Christ is least known and, and be used by him. For, for me and Helen, Helen and I, it, it was really quite different. I, 
I, as I said, had graduated a year earlier than Helen. So I joined OM, was traveling in Eastern Europe. And we were traveling, I was with a small group traveling in the country of Romania, just down the Eastern side, which borders Moldova, the, the former Soviet country of Moldova. And I can remember talking and asking the guys I was traveling with, what countries across the river? And they said, well, that's the, this former Soviet Republic. And I said, well, let's stop and pray. And we stopped as a group of young people and we prayed for the country of Moldova. And one young lady in the team got to the end of her prayer and she said, Lord, please would you send Matthew and Helen as missionaries to Moldova? You know, Helen was back in England. We were engaged or we talked about getting engaged to be married. But, um, you know, that was a big step. But it was as if the moment this young lady prayed that prayer, it, I can only describe, was that a prophetic word? Was it a prophetic prayer? prayer? Because at that moment, I just felt as if God, God's spirit in me said, yes, <laughs> Matthew, I want you and Helen to serve in Moldova. And I couldn't get that thought out of my mind. I, we, we arrived back at the mission base and I wrote a letter, of course, before emails, I, think I wrote a letter to Helen. I said, Helen, I think we should definitely get married. I think God's calling us to be missionaries in Moldova. And then I waited a week or two until the reply came back, um, which was very positive. Um, and we were, we were married within, um, within some months. Um, and then we, yeah, over the next years, pioneered uh, OM's work there. And yeah, we raised our five children and, and spent basically 20 years um, yeah. serving in that country. So just give us a little bit of context. Uh, for myself, apart from anything else, I've never been to Moldova before, haven't really traveled in that part of the world. What's it like culturally, but what's it like in terms of belief or lack of belief? I'm thinking particularly of the time where you first turned up there in, in the 1990s. Yeah. What was the sort of setting and the context that you found yourself in? I can remember first crossing the border and this was mid early 90s and you know it was we felt we were going into a different world you know there were armed guards and, and police checkpoints and recently there had been a civil war and, and, and an area had broke Transnistria had broken away from the rest of Moldova so it was a pretty wild place we we got to the final checkpoint entering the country for the first time and uh, the police told us, the a police checkpoint stopped us and said, don't take that main road through the, uh, through the forest because there are bandits on that road. You want to go on another? So that was, that was in the 90s. And it was, yeah, in some ways quite a scary, but in other ways as young people, quite an exciting place. Um, but we went into this situation it's it's an orthodox country we learned a great deal about what it, to be moldovan is to be orthodox but um we met very few people who were true believers in jesus followers of jesus within the orthodox religion but we did manage to work with the evangelical churches in the country and were just blown away by the the passion and the commitment to christ the commitment in those early years for, for church planting, going out from uh, small village churches to surrounding villages. And we found ourselves as, as young people from the UK, trying to learn the language, trying to understand the, the cultural context and just serving alongside brothers and sisters, learning together um, how to reach out into that context. And 
it was the most most wonderful and sometimes the most difficult time. Um, the conditions, the physical conditions were, were difficult in the 90s living in Moldova for foreigners. And we've seen the church over these last 20, 25 years, the church in Moldova, as in countries like Romania and Ukraine, has just grown hugely. It's been very, very encouraging. But what did an average day look like if there were such a thing? Because you're mm. not, if I understand it correctly, you're not church planting. You're not setting up a church necessarily. So what are, what are you doing? Is it, is it practical aid work? Is it uh, sharing your faith with a, handing someone a pamphlet on the street? Or what, what, what does it actually mean to be a missionary in Moldova in the 1990s? So in those early years, our, our life consisted, we didn't, we had electricity on a, on a rotor. We didn't have running water. Uh, we didn't have heat. So a lot of the time was walking 20 minutes to the well to fetch water for anything we needed, um, uh, studying God's word, and then in the evenings, having gospel meetings. And we had gospel meetings every evening during the winter when people had nothing else to do and there was no electricity. And we just, we, myself and brother Victor, the Moldovan young church planter, uh, we just preached through the 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 new testament we preached through the parables and the i am sayings in the gospel of john um, we went out in the marketplace and and spoke to people we we started sports programs helen my wife and emilia uh, victor's wife started children's clubs and sunday schools and and then we just one one sunday as we were starting to see the <laughs> this little building that we'd rented uh, filling up one one day this guy Kostya just came and he was listening, he's listening all the way and his name was Kostya. And he came to us afterwards and said, you're, you're Christians, you're followers of Jesus. He said, I was just in Moscow. I've been working there as a construct, uh, constructor and, and I've, I've heard this message and I've given my life to Jesus, but I'm from a neighboring village and everyone is laughing at me because of this, this faith that I'm speaking about. You, Matthew, Matei, and Victor, you need to come to my village and tell them about Jesus. You need to tell my family about Jesus. And so we, we started going every Sunday afternoon to the village of Mikloshen. And Kostya invited, his, he opened his home and his wife was very suspicious. But within weeks, his wife had come to faith. And then he was inviting his brothers and his cousins. And we started to see this little home filled with people who were interested in the gospel message and a lot of men were standing on the outside listening in um, and we we had some challenges and our van was broken and smashed and we were attacked a few times but you know when we left Moldova 20 years later we had a big celebration in that one village 140 people came um, who were part of the church now and they celebrated with us what God had done in these last two decades. So just to set this in context for a moment, you said before you were a maths graduate, that would have set you up for a very well-paid job in the city, uh, young couple, married, whole life ahead of you. In order to give up um, arguably quite a comfortable Western lifestyle and move to a new country where electricity was not guaranteed, where you'd have to walk 20 minutes to find a well, um, where the kind of mission work you're involved in is, is, as you've acknowledged, it's hard work. It's not straightforward. It's certainly not well paid. In order to do that, you have to have a very clear sense and confidence that this mission is worthwhile, that mm -hmm. actually it's worthwhile for you to give up a comfortable life and there is real meaning and even joy 
but not just joy in it, but actually what you're preaching and what you're communicating is true. Confidence mm. that actually you've said before, it's, it's God's word, but you have to have real confidence and real faith to believe this really is the word of God. What is it that gives you that confidence both then and now to say, I'm actually staking my whole life on the mm. Bible being true, on Jesus being real? Because of course, most people certainly in the UK today would not agree with those assumptions. And it would seem madness, frankly, to give up comfortable Western life to go and work somewhere where there isn't much electricity or running water. Yeah, I think I think for us as a young couple, um, perhaps naively in those early days, just just stepping out and and we'll go to another country and we'll learn the language and we'll share our faith. Um, we, we didn't know very much, <clears throat> but what we did experience as we took those first steps, God revealed himself more to us. He provided for us. He looked after us. He cared for us. The more we preached and shared our faith, the more we realized this is true. And the, and the more we saw him and still see him today working in our lives, he fills us with love and joy and peace. And we have our moments when we struggle. Of course we do. But we experience God and we want others to experience God. And so during that time, yes, we, you know, I, I didn't have any theological training, but, but I started then to study uh, an open theological uh, course so I was, I was adding to my, um, my, I was adding theolo- theoretical knowledge. I was, I was studying more and, um, and we were growing in our faith. And, and I think that's, that's one of the lessons that has remained with me. If we take a step of faith, God can use us. And he doesn't always reveal the next 20 steps, but we can take another step and he can, he can use us. And if we remain faithful, to what he's called us to each step of the way, then he'll reveal uh, the next things. So can you share a story or two of what those encouragements look like practically in Moldova, things that happened, whether, um, I don't know whether you'd go as far as say things that happened were even miraculous or just encouragements that happened that, that, that really solidified your faith and, and made you think, wow, yeah, we're in the right place. I, I do remember early on, um, on, in fact, on one of those first the, one of those first trips, I was uh, traveling. This was before Helen had joined me, and I'd I'd tried to raise support needed to be a, a missionary in that first year. And I was on my first first visit to Romania, and we were traveling in very remote mountains up in the up in the north. And we'd not been able to buy as we'd traveled through Hungary on the way. We'd not been able to buy bread. In fact, we had bought bread, but when I when I tasted it, it was bread that had been um, baked with with peppers, and I, I was not used to that sort of bread. And I can remember with this group of young people we, we were traveling with, I started complaining. We had cheese, we had this pepper bread, and we had orange juice. And I was complaining, saying, I, I can't eat this bread. And now we, we were going to be sleeping on top of Bibles in the van, and it was freezing cold. And you know, sometimes it's the little things that can really start to frustrate frustrate you. And I was thinking, if this is what the missionary life is all about, then I, I could do without this. I, I don't want to sleep in the back of a cold van, uncomfortable, with an empty stomach, because I just can't stomach this, this Hungarian bread. And it was late on a Sunday night. We hadn't been able to find anywhere else to buy other bread. And we were looking for a place to park up and sleep in the van that night. As we rounded a corner in the mountains, 
this guy jumped out into the middle of the road and was beckoning for us to stop. And so we, we, we pulled the van over and he needed a pump. He needed help pumping up a tire. And we had a hand pump and we went and helped pump his tire. And I took out a remaining gospel of John and I gave it to him and I tried to in broken Romanian say, God bless you, but I, I couldn't speak at the time. And suddenly this guy grabbed me and started pulling me to the side of the road. And I was ready to fight him off. And, you know, I, I didn't know what was happening. I was quite scared, but he was kind of being, being friendly. And he pulled me gently then to the back of his van and he opened this little van that we'd helped him pump the tire up. And in it were these homemade wooden shelves. And he was obviously a baker. There was huge, many, many big Romanian mountain breads uh, filling this van. Obviously he was, he was uh, delivering late on Sunday night, ready for Monday morning. And he took one of these huge loaves of bread, which I had to lift, he, he took it in two hands and gave it to me. It was still hot and I jogged it back to the van. And these, the, the, the guys I was traveling with said, where'd you get that bread from? You've been complaining about bread all this time. And I said, do you know what? I think, I think God gave it to us. Um, and we broke open that bread and had this warm Romanian bread, beautiful tasting bread and cheese and orange juice. And as I slept on those Bibles, rearranged the Bibles and slept on them that night, you know, it was as if it was as if God was just smiling and saying, Matthew, do you see? Matthew, I can care for you. I can provide for you. Do you trust me? Holier than thou. Radical. Delusional. Ignorant. Perfect. It's time to challenge stereotypes about Christians, and Premier Christianity is leading the way. Transform your perceptions, broaden your horizons, open your mind to wide-ranging views. Read interviews with politicians, theologians, and TV presenters. Discover the breadth of the Christian spectrum. Be provoked, react, inspired, and informed. Get the print magazine and full online access for just £4.95 a month. Subscribe today at premierchristianity.com. Premier Christianity magazine. The bigger picture. In years past, some evangelicals um, seem to really be working under the understanding of the gospel is we need to preach a message and people need to believe the right thing. And while evangelicals have not moved away from that, I think in recent years, you could argue there's been a coming together of words and actions. And there's been an understanding, certainly in the UK church, that we are not just preaching a message, but we want to be good news through what we do. And so we've seen, haven't we, the explosion of things like street pastors and food banks and debt counselling. Where does OM sit within all of that when it comes to words and actions? Would you agree it's a holistic approach of we need to be doing both? I think we'd, we'd say absolutely we do agree with that. Um, perhaps in the early years, OM would have been seen more as a proclamation uh, mission. Um, you know, George Verwer and, and many others who joined uh, literature evangelism, preaching the gospel. And I suppose it was, I believe it was in the late 80s that, I mean, there, there had been a sh certainly shifting in understanding, but, but it was in the, in the 80s, I believe, that some of the OM leaders were visiting what had been, you know, a terrible situation with the Kurdish people fleeing one of the Iraqi wars. And that realisation that, that we can um, reach out to these people, and we, indeed we need to help, help Christian 
ministries reach out to these people demonstrating the love of Christ whilst also sharing, sharing the love of Christ. And I think that was one of the significant moments in, in OM's history. Um, but certainly today, in these days, there's this understanding that we are, we are, it is so important to proclaim the good news of Jesus, but we also are demonstrating the good news of Jesus. So all of the partners that we work with, <clears throat> I think of just recently in, in contact with a Syrian pastor, helping him and his congregation reach out to internally displaced people in this war-torn country that Syria, you know, 400,000 people or so have lost their lives and millions upon millions have been displaced. So helping Syrian believers reach out, demonstrating the love of Christ and seeing opportunities to, to verbally proclaim, proclaim the good news of Jesus at the same time. Presumably, though, even short-term mission trips have become incredibly difficult. What with the latest government's restrictions, um, not that not a, not that a short-term mission trip is a holiday, but it is currently illegal for me to go on holiday. Um, and so, I imagine if if I'm living in the UK and I want to help with OM abroad, is is that now next to impossible? Um, well, it it has been for this last um, for this last twelve months. It's you know OM and many other mission agencies. You know we. We, we encourage people to be involved in short-term outreaches, not actually because we think short-term outreaches in themselves are the best way of reaching the world for Christ, but we see what God does as a, a well-prepared group of, of young people, let's say a youth group, when they're able to go and partner with a local ministry, uh, work under the authority of a local ministry and go to serve, what God can do through them, but what God can do in them can be really exciting and extraordinary. And many young people then come back and, and are all fired up for following Jesus and making him known in the world. But you're absolutely right. This last year, short-term opportunities, whether through OM or, or anyway, it's, it's almost fallen off a cliff. We've just not been able to um, see people travel, of course. Um, we're starting to see, and we do hope as we look at the, the roadmap for coming out of all these lockdowns and restrictions in the UK, May the 17th or into June, we, we believe that this summer from the UK will start to see opportunities for, for uh, Christians to travel again and uh, be involved in, in serving in other countries. But of course, we're very aware, even once from the UK, we might, we might be in a position where we can travel again. What's it going to be like in other countries? And you know, our hearts are breaking when we see the, the situation in India and in so many places. Um, you know, it's, I think this is one of the ministries of OM um, is, is to encourage us all not just to focus on our own needs. We're, isn't, isn't that the case? Sometimes we're so focused on our own needs, but lifting up our eyes, recognizing what's happening in India, what's happening in parts of uh, Africa and uh, well, in many of the refugee situations around the world, um, these tragedies where where we should be as as Christians in in the UK, who relatively speaking, life can be easier for us. Um, how can we continue to be a blessing to others? I suppose is one of the big questions. When you look at something like COVID nineteen and the pandemic. What is your view on it? Is this just we live in a fallen world and horrible things happen? Or, or is it more significant than that? And actually, has, has God allowed 
COVID and is there a particular kind of purpose in that or particular lessons that we as Christians need to learn or even particular lessons for Christian ministries like OM to learn longer term that that in some ways this pandemic might change how you operate or that God has allowed it to shake up your ministry in some way do you have any reflections on that yeah I mean it's a huge question isn't it has has God I mean, God, God has allowed this to happen because he is, he is sovereign. He is in control of all things. But we know that we live in a fallen world as well and, and that he, he, he mourns and, and, you know, the situation of this, this fallen, broken world, the suffering that is, that is happening. But as we, as we as a mission agency, I suppose, together with all local churches were in the same situation where we're all at the point saying, well, a year on, um, and now it's more than a year, isn't it? What are the lessons that we've learned? You know, just as a local church will be saying, what should church look like? We've learned that we can go online. There have been some positives, but we're really missing certain aspects. Well, local churches are grappling with what does going back to having live meetings or hybrid meetings look like as mission agencies of course we we are having to learn to be agile to innovate we need to we we've seen and had a glimpse of opportunities of using technology to to see the word of god going going out even more i think of our um our turkish ministry in london turkish speakers who there are a couple of uh, churches where Turkish is spoken. And normally, you know, one of our workers would perhaps be preaching to 30 or 40 people uh, in Turkish on a Sunday morning. Um, as we went into lockdown and church went online, suddenly 1,300 Turkish speakers were logging on and listening to the gospel messages. Um, so we, well, what are the lessons learned? We're seeing that nothing stops God's mission. It's not OM's mission. It's not our mission. God, God has a plan and he will, he will work through even the most difficult circumstances. And I suppose we, whether we're in local churches, whether we're in mission agencies, we have to, we have to understand what is God saying in this? How can we adapt? How can we innovate we certainly as om even before covid we were we we're, we're not just in a position where it's western christians going out to the rest of the world goodness that has that decades ago we recognized that was finishing it's now about everyone being mobilized we we have latino christians we have sub-saharan african many parts of asia who are very active, Eastern Europeans and, and of course other Europeans, sending nations. Um, the, the mobilizing of near and same culture workers to go to some of the countries, perhaps through the Sahel region or into Central Asia, North Africa. Um, these, are, these are some of the strategies that we were working on before COVID, but through this COVID pandemic, we've seen, yeah, that, that God wants us to continue to adapt. And it's not, it's not everything back to normal, but there's an exciting new normal um, that God wants us to embrace and, and understand what he's doing. We hear a lot internationally about areas where Christians are persecuted for their faith. 
don't always hear so much about internationally where the church is really growing and thriving, except to say, of course, that many, many of the places where Christians are persecuted is also true. The church is thriving. But if I were to ask you for a sort of a top five or a top 10 list of nations, you think actually people need to know something quite significant and special is happening in that nation. Does anywhere come to mind? Yeah, I was just reading a report and um, most extraordinary what God is doing um, amongst the Iranian people, whether in Iran or the diaspora, um, we are seeing huge numbers. I believe it's estimated that a million uh, Iranians now follow Jesus in Iran. And of course, many who work with, um, with, with refugees or friends who have been coming from Iran into Europe will testify to huge numbers who have been coming to faith. Um, so amongst Iranian peoples, we just we praise God and, and thank him for what what he's doing. Um, I mean, in, in, in Greece, our, our leader in Greece just recently told me that I said, you know, how, how's the ministry been going in this last year? Have you just been in lockdown? He said, he said, Matthew, we've been in lockdown, but, you know, we've planted three new churches. We've got a church amongst Afghans, we've got a church amongst Iranians and a church amongst Syrians. We've seen so many come to faith in this last year through the refugee ministry that has been able to continue. Um, so, <laughs> so in the midst of all that's happening, and of course, of course, and we could talk of what's, what's happening, you know, the, the explosion of the church in Latin America, in parts of Asia, sub-Saharan Africa. We just received news from our ministry in Zambia. And of course, the church is huge in, in, in southern Africa. In Zambia, just our one sports ministry team have seen 1,800, not believers, 1,800 new groups of believers starting. We call them vibrant communities of Jesus followers. Just one ministry in one country, Zambia, 1,800 new small church groups uh, have been started. We could talk more, but, but God's at work around the world and, um, and it's his mission and we're invited to play a part in his mission to his world. You wrote an article for us at Premier Christianity magazine um, just very recently. And um, in it, you said that the urgency to go out and reach the 2.1 billion people in our world who have never heard the gospel has significantly dwindled in recent years. So despite the growth you're talking about and the good news stories and the testimonies, you're saying that actually in terms of the UK church, the interest in going and spreading uh, the good news of Jesus is dwindling. Why is that? Yeah, and and we wish we knew exactly why, and different folks will have different opinions, but certainly I think we can really categorically say that the, the number of people who are being sent out from churches in North America and Western Europe, the traditional um, uh, mission-sending countries of of previous centuries, um, certainly those numbers seem to be dropping. Um, now we thank God for the, the growth of the church in other areas and the, the increase in missionaries who are being sent out um, from some of those other countries and areas I've been mentioning. But what is the situation in the UK? Is it that there are less people being sent out into mission? A huge number of possibilities here. I, th I think the answer is yes, less people are going. Is it because that um, 
perhaps there's there's less understanding of the needs around the world and yet we live in an age when it's so much easier to communicate and find out what's happening is it that it's just a little bit easy to be a follower of Jesus in the UK to go along to church on a Sunday morning to tick a box it's all it's all quite quite easy there's no um, it doesn't cost us much does it um, to be a Christian here of course that's it is difficult for some folks um, is there a lack of discipleship a lack of real commitment to Christ uh, what we experienced in Moldova in those early years people coming to faith and so excited about their faith they you couldn't hold them back they were just bubbling over to share have we lost something of that enthusiasm do we live in such a uh, a fearful risk averse culture that we, we we're afraid to offend people um you know it's not very politically correct is it to say jesus said i am the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father except through me and if we as a church if the body of christ if we don't really believe that what's the point of sharing with others everyone will get there and we believe jesus is the way the truth and life it's such good news <laughs> we want to share with others and yet maybe in the uk we're not so committed uh, as we were maybe we're not praying as much as we used to isn't the answer though simpler than that in the sense that if we were to go back even just five or ten years there would have been more people in this country who identified as christian actually by every every measurement uh, the church in the uk while there are pockets of growth if you look at the overall trend it's one of decline so isn't isn't the answer just simply that there's less of a pool of people to draw from in 2021 than there would have been in 1990 uh, poss possibly but then when it depends on our definition of church because you can look at some statistics and well the church in the broadest broadest sense there's less people who are attending church but perhaps if you look at more uh, the evangelical church those who who are um, believing the bible as the word of god and walking closely with the lord we do see some incredible um incredible encouragements in the growth of the church and the growth of the church in the uk amongst uh, those who have recently come to live in the UK. Of course, that's, that's where the Eastern Europeans and Latinos and Africans coming to the UK have, have contributed quite significantly to, to the growth of the church in some areas. It, it, is, it is difficult to understand, but I would say perhaps it's down primarily to a depth of discipleship and commitment to Christ I often think of Isaiah, and we, we'd, we quote this often in mission talks, Isaiah 6, here am I, send me. But you see what happened before. Isaiah was this religious guy, this priest who had just gone to lead worship in the temple. He didn't expect to meet with God, and God met with him. God turned up. And when, he, when Isaiah glimpsed God, and he glimpsed the holiness of God, well, he couldn't stop himself. He was just falling over himself with those words, Lord, here am I, send me. Maybe that's what we need in the UK, a fresh vision of God, the holiness of God. And then we won't need to convince people to go and share their faith. We'll all be, we'll all be wanting to share our faith because we've seen Jesus and we want others to see Jesus. I often like to ask people who've lived and worked in other parts of the world what they've learned from the church 
in other nations. I'll give you one small example. David Olilowo, who's a Hollywood actor. He's British, but he's lived in Hollywood for a long time. And I asked him this question. He said, in the UK, when people talk about faith, they tend to say, I'm a Christian and kind of whisper mm-hmm. it and be a bit ashamed of it. And he said, actually, living in America, people are very upfront about their faith. So what are the things that you've noticed, perhaps from your time in Moldova? You think, think actually, the Christians there, they thought about things, they lived in a way that I think we in the UK, we should learn from their example. Anything come to mind? Yeah, I mean, as I look at our time, actually, I think when we first moved to the UK, one of the biggest challenges was we'd grown up there in ministry in Eastern Europe, and we'd learned nothing's impossible. God, God can do anything. Um, and if and we need to have that attitude that by faith, God can use us. Um, you see, in Eastern Europe, we learn to have a can-do attitude. Is it possible? And I know I'm generalizing. I wouldn't want to offend anyone. But maybe in Britain, there's a bit of a can't-do attitude, a little bit of fear. We're risk averse. We And we have to be careful and we have to be compliant and we have to work within. The, of course we do. But I do love the spontaneity in Eastern Europe. We would just, <laughs> we'd put 20 young people from the church in the back of the van and we'd go and we'd preach the gospel and we'd run Sunday clubs and it would just be the most wonderful thing. And of course, we, we live in a different time now and we have to be um, very cautious and careful. But, but having a can-do attitude, trusting that nothing's impossible for God. God, God can work miracles. Have we in Britain perhaps sometimes forgotten the reality that God answers prayer, God does miracles, and we're involved in a spiritual battle? This is a serious business. Um, and we need to be maybe on our, on our knees a lot more uh, than perhaps we are sometimes. These are some things maybe I've learned from my brothers and sisters in Eastern Europe. I imagine when you were in the back of that van, uh, lying on top of those Bibles, uh, driving around uh, 20 years ago, you probably never dreamed that you'd end up being chief executive of OM. What's the best thing about being chief executive and what's the most frustrating thing? Mm. I mean, the the best thing is just the, the privilege, the privilege of of getting a glimpse, you know, I, I, my, my inbox is, is full of testimonies and stories of what's happening around the world. I was, I was just before this call talking with a brother from Sierra Leone, how God's using him and the vision for ministering in, in a certain part of the world. So, so I think the, the, the privilege of, of meeting gospel workers, people who are out there on the, on the front line, um, making Christ known in areas where, where there's never been a Christian church. Um, that's been an incredible, incredible privilege. I, I was just in Moldova and, and had a smaller vision and, and, and suddenly here in the UK in this role, being able to get a glimpse somewhat of what's happening in a hundred countries. It's, well, it's overwhelming, but it's exciting. Uh, what's frustrating. I mean, probably I'd go back to what I said before that, you know, it's, it's not, all all simple (laughs) we have to work um, with all sorts of compliance and governance issues Um, we we are so thankful that we're in a in a country where where things are organized and official and we have a charity commission these are all very very positive things Um, but for me it's been a it's been a steep learning curve 
learning to minister in the UK, having having been in in Eastern Europe, where where things weren't always so organised and planned in advance. So I suppose I've had to I've had to learn more about planning, bringing people along in the vision. Sometimes having to persuade people, whereas in Eastern Europe we didn't. It, people didn't take so much persuading. Let's let's do it. <laughs> we had the, we, we we had more of this attitude of of God can do it, so let's just do it. Whereas here, there's a little bit more a sense yes. of there's probably a number of reasons why we shouldn't do this. Um, yes, <laughs> we need a bit more caution. A bit more um, caution. And yeah. so I have to I have to live with this co- constant tension. I suppose. Absolutely. All right. Well, Matthew, thank you so much for talking to us. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Sam. It's been wonderful to be able to share with you and and your listeners. Thanks so much for listening to The Profile today. It's been great to have your company. I'm Sam Hales, editor of Premier Christianity magazine. That's the magazine that sponsors this show and makes it all possible. If you want to get hold of the latest issue, Matthew has written a really challenging article for us in our Reimagine column all about world missions and the need for us as Christians to step up in that area, be praying and also taking action. A really stirring piece from Matthew. I encourage you to check it out. It's just been published in the May edition of Premier Christianity magazine. If you're not yet a subscriber, then head to premierchristianity.com right now. You'll be able to subscribe not only to the print product, but you'll also get a fantastic digital package, meaning you'll be able to access us through our website and even through our app as well. So check that out now at premierchristianity.com. And if you want more interviews just like this one, do check out The Profile as a podcast. Just search for The Profile wherever you normally get your podcasts from. Well over 200 different interviews with leading Christians from all walks of life. Available now on The Profile podcast. That's all we've got time for this week. We will see you next time. Until then, have a great rest of your weekend.